This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara here on 102.7 3RRR. I'm Cade Mills. I'm Rex Hunter. Now, the responsible people aren't here today, Rex. <laughs> it's just going to be the two of us taking over We're the show. We're here without Mum. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. I'm sure she's listening at home <laughs> and we wish her all the best in her speedy recovery and to use Bron's words, she's cactus at the moment, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is a good one because I haven't heard that for a while. A big thanks to Tim Thorpe for Vital Bits, keeping me entertained on the drive-in. Always good, always good, yes. Now, we've got a huge show on the way. We've got, well, we've got one very special guest and that's you to begin with. Of course. <laughs> and what are we talking about today, Rex? Well, we're going to be talking about the uh, sort of sea mysteries and the mahogany ship the alleged mahogany ship off um, between Warrnambool and Port Ferry. The alleged. The alleged. Are we going to dig into that further <laughs> as we get into the segment? We'll yeah, investigate all sorts of hypotheses and theories. Sounds like we're going to end up with more questions and answers by the end of this segment. I love it. It's Basically, great. Basically, yes. Beautiful. And then after that, we're going to have a special guest, which is Fum Sharko from the Port Phillip Eco Centre. And she's also a presenter on one of our sister stations, 3CR. She does Out of the Blue. So she's, every chance she's probably going to run from what she's doing with us to then present Out of the yeah. Blue at 11.30 on 3CR. But she's coming in to talk about microplastics in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong River. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Neil Blake in and he made a brief mention of it. But um, Fum was actually the main author of the report and she's going to dig into it a little bit deeper as far as what the results were from the survey and also I guess where we can go in the future, what this information can actually help us um, change in the future. Yeah, yeah. The way we operate, for That's sure. it. I think we do need to make a lot of changes. And then we're going to follow that up. We're going to call in to Terry and Pauline, who are down in the lovely, hopefully sunny Sorrento, <laughs> who have organised and, well, they're organising their second Moby Rocks event. Now, it caught my eye, so I got in touch with them. And to be honest, I haven't actually spoken to them yet. So this will be first great time to meet a person, isn't it? Straight on air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of Moby since the mid-90s. Mid <laughs> 
<laughs> nice reference. But we're going to chat to them about the Moby Rocks event they have coming up and also some Great of the... Great work they're doing too. The, yeah, the amazing work yeah. they're doing. And it, from what I can tell, it's just a couple of people that yeah. sort of saw that you know, there's a lot of beautiful beaches in the bay, but access for people with yeah. disability and limited mobility is really scarce. And they just took it upon themselves yeah. to start changing that and pretty much one place at a time. So yeah. I can't wait to find out more from them. Now, I believe you've got the weather for us, Got Rex. the weather uh, here. Um, it would be lovely uh, down, down Sorrento with a north-northeast and um, going around to west-southwest, west, I think, later in the day. So uh, be prepared to have your um, hats blown off. Uh, <laughs> well, if you didn't surf, you wouldn't be wearing a hat, would you? <laughs> oh, no, they do wear hats. They wear hoods and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, 10 to 14 degrees, uh, 27... Well, it says 27 kilometres per hour, but I saw... On bomb, it's going to be blowing around 38 to 40 knots later in the day. You're suggesting we don't always believe what's in the paper? <laughs> I think there might be some fake news here. <laughs> um, so we've got tides at the heads. We've got tides. Uh, Melbourne. Oh, point, point lines. Oh, here we go. Um, low water is at uh, 6.30 a.m., so we better leave a couple of hours ago. Uh, highs at uh, 1.30 p.m. and slacks somewhere in between. And generally, divers go for the slack water at the head, so that's the most important one. Yep, and I forgot to mention earlier, we're going to have a call in with Dr Surf and get a surf report. So yeah. I'm, I'm guessing his report uh, might be a bit more detailed and on, on point than what we're finding in the paper. Well, at, at, off um, Cape Shank last week, there's sort of two to, two to four metre swells when we're out. So. I can't wait to talk to him about that. I actually had someone show me photos of Two Mile Bay down at Port Campbell and some of the waves coming through there were massive. So I'd love to know where Dr Surf was while that was all <laughs> happening. Now, I also forgot to mention at the start of the show uh, that we're going to have a giveaway later on, so stay tuned. And if you're a subscriber, make sure you've got your subscriber number ready to jump on board. Now, I've got a little bit of news here. Now, the first one, this was one of my favourite that my wife showed me last weekend, is the Murundindi Beanie Festival. <laughs> It's going on at the moment at St John's Anglican Church Hall in Alexandra, so probably a couple of hours north of Melbourne from 10 till 4. And what they're doing is they're actually raising money to buy firewood for the local elderly people. <laughs> and the way they do that is they have local people knitting beanies. Apparently there's going to be hundreds of beanies on display. And one of the local artists, Sue Wynn, has actually knitted beanies representing the theme of this year's, which is mountain streams to ocean shores that's why i mentioned it on this this show wondering what the segue was there. yeah but apparently she's also she's knitted some beanies that represent algae kelp frogs fish and sharks very good and apparently there's even a prize for the top three beanies so if you're out and about today and you need to rug up and keep warm and you're up that way visit the beanie festival and make sure you get hold of one and also this is just a bit of a note for something coming up in the future is the inaugural Bessie and Mesac Fossil Exposition. Now, before I go any further, I'll explain what Bessie and Mesac are. Mm. So Bessie is the Bayside Earth Sciences Society and Mesac is the Marine Education Science and Community Centre. Now, they're based down at Beaumaris. And so on the 26th of August from 9.30 to 2.30, they're basically going to have talks and videos on the fossils that we find out around in that area. And fossil beach and through there. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to basically provide a bit of local knowledge and some understanding of what's there. But this is my favourite part. They're almost going to do like an antique roadshow for fossils. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you can actually bring your fossils in. So if you've got any fossils, and most people tend to have one laying around that someone's given them or an, yeah. a relative found somewhere, you can bring them in and they'll identify them for you. Well, that might relate to some of my diving equipment. <laughs> <laughs> you might be able to take that down too. <laughs> That'd be great. So, again, that's on the 26th of August at the Beaumaris Yacht Club. If you want to get on board that, um, try booking is the place to go. Yeah. I'm guessing if you type in Bessie or Misak, that'll come up with that. And have you got any news? Oh, us? just a little bit of news. Uh, MWAV have uh, been out doing a bit of a search of Cape Shank last week, which was... Week, week, which was a bit sloppy, so... Uh, MAAV. Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria. That's yep. uh, I'm a member of that group. So we're out there mowing the lawn in some pretty sloppy conditions, so the data is quite <laughs> quite average. Uh, and, you know, you go out and think, oh, it might be all right, we'll just sneak around the corner. It might be a bit better as we get down the coast a bit further. We launch at Flinders. Oh, we'll go a bit further, it might improve more. It never improves. <laughs> <laughs> and by mowing the lawn... It's you were side scan sonar? Side scan sonar, yeah, yeah. doing a set of transits along the coast there looking for a wreck called the Reliance that sank off there in 1869. So is this going to be a story to come up in future when you find it? Well, hopefully, yeah, it's a big story. It really, really be a really nifty little site and tell us a little, great deal about early Mel- Melbourne engineering and shipbuilding and that type of thing. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, so you'll be back out there again when weather conditions <laughs> improve? Is that the plan? <laughs> it improves. Yeah. So also we're out with the uh, friends of the Jawbone yesterday with Dave Dave Speller and Sandy Webb. Um, we're doing a series of wreck inspections off the um, Croy Creek and through, through the Jawbone. Um, we're talking about a sort of combined effort of putting guide sheets out for, um, you know, snorkelers and maybe kayakers so they can get a lat and long and go to the site and maybe snorkel it or just paddle over the top of it and just build up a database because it's such a unique and beautiful area to go to. And it's great, you know, great diving, great snorkeling through the, along the back of the jawbone there. That's a fantastic idea because we do have a lot of guides, you know, the fish and the plants and the yeah. animals and all that sort of stuff, but we, I don't... Personally, I don't see tend to see too many local guides about the wrecks that are there and, yeah. you know, a bit of a story and a history. And once you start yeah. to know that story, you really appreciate it a lot more. Yes, yes. So that's the idea behind it. So we, we went out yesterday uh, and I uh, booked a pot, pot of dolphins that turned up at uh, 9 o'clock on time. And <laughs> <laughs> That was good. Is that the, so more people come next time? Yeah. So Dave and, Dave and Sandy were very impressed that the dolphins turned up. Yeah, and I, we were chatting just before in the green room that Dave is actually one of the founders of <laughs> Radio Marinara back in the early days. Yeah, so he's still diving, still keen as mustard. Oh, it'd be great to have him in one day. And yeah. yeah. Some of the stories, I'm sure he's got a few up his sleeve. Now, it looks like it's time to go for a track. Now, this one I programmed especially for you, Rex. It's oh. by Florence and the Machine, and it's called Ship to Wreck. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it is, Florence and the Machine is actually one of those artists that I wasn't overly into and I sort of went there and then I went and saw her live and it made, made me sort of reiterated that idea of don't discount any artist until you see them live because, geez, they can change your mind quickly and <laughs> she was absolutely spectacular. So here's a song for you, Rex. Oh, thanks very much. That was Florence and the Machine with Ship to Wreck, a song especially for you, Rex. Oh, I'm going to... My heart's beating and fluttering. <laughs> I'm so excited. There's a lot of love in the room. It feels good. <laughs> a lot of love for shipwrecks out there. That's it. So what have you been up to, Rex? Um, what have I been up to? Um, yeah. I've been doing a bit of research and uh, on a vessel called the Mahogany... Sh- the alleged vessel called the Mahogany Ship. 
So if we go back, we'll go way, way back to yep. uh, Prince Henry the Navigator. He was um, the 15th century. He was a uh, sort of pushing, pushing, uh, pushing Portugal's barrow, so to speak. On you know, obviously the way to, for expansion it was through trade and money and all that type of thing. So he started pushing um, navigation and exploring and and um, all that that type of. Uh, Thing you did in that that period <laughs> to get get out your own backyard and uh, find find new areas of exploration. So um, by the sort of late fifteenth century, uh, Vasco da Gama had gone around the tip of Africa uh, and then made his well, casually made his way across to India to because um, you know the spices that India had was worth an absolute squillion dollars. You know some of the spices would tra- trade. Ounce for ounce with gold, they were that valuable. Wow, which do you know which ones in particular? Like, oh, it'd be like nutmeg and all these other ones, and yeah, you know, obviously, obviously saffron. Saffron's a still is still is yeah, <laughs> mad madly priced. Um, even salt. I mean, salt was was a rare commodity way back, you know, hundreds of years ago. And sugar, sugar and salt that you know they shoved in your throat these days on everything you buy, including toothpaste or, or whatever. So um, that was the. That was the idea to get out, get out there in backyard, find and go out, go out, young man, and explore the the wide world that we don't know much about. Um, from then on, we had uh, Magellan in um, fifteen nineteen, and he was the first person to or alleged first person to sail around the world. Uh, unfortunately, he had a very bad trip and didn't make it back alive. Uh, you know. So he didn't quite make it? He didn't quite make it. No. Bad, bad uh, maybe he got some bad airline food, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it can do it to you. Yeah. Um, and then sort of these guys are getting closer and closer to Australia. They didn't, didn't, didn't quite get there. And um, we had uh, Torres, uh, Luis de, de Torres uh, in, what was he, in 1606. They were getting closer and closer, and we all know Torres Straits, Torres Strait Islanders. To uh, well, that's where the name comes from. In 1606, he sailed through there and discovered the Straits. And just a couple of months before that, there was a um, William Jans. He was a, a Dutch, a Dutch sea captain, and he actually went through uh, Torres Straits without re- realizing it and uh, explored. From he came down from New, New uh, West, Western New Guinea. To explore the Gulf of Carpentaria and all that, and found it, uh, quite, yeah, not very hospitable. Lots of mud, crocodiles, mosquitoes. You know the whole, the whole show. Didn't find too much nutmeg. <laughs> not very much nutmeg to, to look for. Um, so yeah, these guys are getting closer and closer to Australia, and then after that, there was a, a, a vessel called the Trial from the Dutch East India Company, and the Trial was uh, sailing up up the coast of Australia. Australia, because they used to sail around Cape of Good Hope and head dead uh, dead east until they went so many leagues, and then they'd have to head north to uh, try and find Batavia, which is modern day Jakarta. And some of them would sail a little bit too far east, and then crash into Australia. So, uh, <laughs> which happened with uh, you know quite a number of Dutch vessels like the Batavia and all that. So this, um, the trial was actually hit the Montebello Islands in 1622. Um, so this is a couple of years before the Batavia was wrecked, which is 1629. 
and if you know your history of the Montebello Islands, you know that's where the, uh, the British dropped a few nuclear bombs or atomic bombs, did a bit of practising. So this wreck was finally found in the late 1960s. And was so it was it uncovered due to the activity there, <laughs> or was it just people finally went back out there after no, the it, testing? There's a guy it. did a lot of lot of research and um, actually put the put a needle in the map, and then these these other explorers, I think the Western Australian Explorers Society, went out there and actually found the site with because his research was so good. And as with every, knowing your position on the world in the 1600s, 1700s, it was very hard because they could get a latitude, but they couldn't really get a longitude. It's a good book about that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's Dovell. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, great book. Um, so we're getting close. We're actually getting very, very close to Australia, as we we know, it, as explorers are you know, finding. Um, it wasn't until... Um, let's check my notes here. Uh, Abel Tasman in 1642 uh, actually ran to the tip of Tassie and claimed um, he was a Dutch explorer, so he claimed Tasmania for Holland in uh, 1642 and didn't do much with it after that. Um, as we see, we're getting getting closer and closer and closer and closer, but there's still still no one really knew about um, what was sort of in that gap between the eastern side of Australia and the western side of Australia. There's a whole lot of nothing that... I'm just curious, so any maps of that time, do they just have like a big blank space or did they think it was sea? Or uh, Terra Australis Incognito was called there at one stage <laughs> and they had, the Dutch had part of the coast of WA mapped and a little bit of... Because uh, Abel Tasman went up the east coast of Fairway. And so they had sort of um, out, at the outline and there was a... There was a French school of map called the uh, called Dieppe... Um, Excuse my French, <laughs> and they they apparently um, got some Portuguese maps and they converted them to uh, you know re, re, redraw them. Now what they were saying is that the uh, the Portuguese just because they were so good at exploring and they didn't want anybody to find these maps, they actually you need a special code like the Enigma machine from World oh, wow. War Two to yeah. reassemble them. And whether this is urban myth or whatever, <laughs> we, we don't know. So um, then they had this this country called Java La Grande, which was you know, so hypothetical and bits and pieces may or may have not have looked like Australia. Wow. So we come to um, 1836. There's a couple of uh, sealers sailing out of Port Ferry and they're, they're chasing seals along the coast, heading east towards Warrnambool and just off the Hopkins River they chased the whale into a little bay there and... Uh, Means to they wrecked their boat. One of the guys was drowned, but the two others got ashore and they decided the quickest way back to Port Ferry was just walk along the coastline and sort of a few kilometres along the coast and sort of south of Tower Hill, they allegedly found a wooden wreck um, sort of nine metres above the waterline up in the sand dunes and red in colour. Allegedly found? Well, they found a wreck. Okay. <laughs> I was curious as to where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, it'll be alleged that is uh, it was Portuguese, uh-huh. uh, but there, obviously there's been lots of wrecks there. I mean, there was, I think it was 1841. There was a notice to the mariners that said the um, they found these candles washed up at Cape Otway, and they believe it was a French whaler 
disappeared. So Bass Strait was found, first discovered by uh, Flinders in 1803, something like that. So after that they knew there was a lot of sealers, seals and whales used Bass Strait, a lot of seals, so sealers and whalers started going through there. So between 1803 and, say, 1836, there's a very strong possibility that some of these um, sealers or whalers got themselves wrecked and the vessel ended up on shore. So the sort of urban myth grew from there where... um, uh, so it was Portuguese, you know, there had to be Portuguese. What else could it be besides Portuguese? A Portuguese, lost Portuguese caravel. And uh, so the sort of urban myth grew from there and this site, this wreck was spotted or a number of wrecks were spotted between there and 1880 and, until it was reburied in the sand. So sort of every now and then this thing recycles and go through the arg- old arguses and there'd be people writing letters to the editor or letters saying, you know, what about the mahogany ship, you know, that predates settlement and all that type of thing. And has, has no one got a chunk of the ship? Like you haven't been able to Well, allegedly, get a some, allegedly again, somebody, <laughs> somebody grabbed a piece of wood from in the 1870s or 1880s and made pens, little pens out of them, you know. Yeah, souvenirs almost. Ca- yeah, yeah, case, case yeah. for pens. Um, but where they ended up and, and what what happened, nobody knows. So, so um, there's a guy called uh, Kenneth McIntyre, and he wrote a book called Java Legrand, and he's his hypothesis was that the Portuguese had discovered Australia, and because of the uh, Portuguese in the secret cities of coded encoded the the maps of Australia so you needed to break them up and then reassemble these maps and, and then you have a, a picture of Australia and there's another um, academic from Flinders University um, uh, oh. Richardson Richardson and Richardson spent the last 35 years uh, deconstructing Keith uh, McIntyre's argument, which is a lot of um, conjecture and not really much science, and the academic approach is is rigorous, and he's sort of just cut you know cut trenches through this Keith Kenneth McIntyre's ideas that there was a uh, a lost Portuguese caravel, which is there's no record of the vessels being lost in the first place. Sounds very Da Vinci Code. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there's a book for you, Rex. It's a book for me. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm pretty – I'd be 99.999% certain that the mahogany's just ship oh, you've, is an urban myth. You've heard it here on Radio <laughs> Marinara. There are, wrecks, bed. there are wrecks there, but Portuguese I doubt very much. And I'm guessing part of the problem there too, you said you went out mowing um, the other day in the water. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit harder to mow the sand dunes, I'm guessing. Is there any technology you can use to penetrate yeah, through? Yeah, ground, ground, you can use ground penetrating okay. LIDAR. And uh, radar. Just, you can use LIDAR. Yep. LIDAR will, strips away the vegetation, so if you see something underneath it, it'll come up as a lump. Or There's usually signatures, you know, like tri- yep. there'll be a, you know, a shape it's just in the landscape. There'll so, be a hollow or something like that. And so obviously nothing's come up using any of those sort no. of techniques. No, it's that, just... So. It's, yep. uh, Stretching credibility just a little too far for me. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that, Rex. So that's the mahogany ship. <laughs> Put to bed on Radio Marinara. Fantastic. That's great. Forget about it. Find look, something new. <laughs> we move on to more stories. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. 
If only we had Wayne Lynch's phone number, we might be able to get hold of him and actually get a surf report today. So I'm guessing we called Dr Surf and we didn't get a response. We might just wind down the window and look out. (laughs) (laughs) We might be able to get it from the guys in for the third segment down at Sorrento. They might have been over and had a look. But that makes me think that perhaps there's a few waves around. There could Could be be. one way of doing it. I I did check the surf report this morning just in case something like this happened and there is a couple of foot as well. We've got the northerly winds. um, Offshore. Offshore winds. So the surf coast and the peninsula probably going to have quite a few waves. Um, And I know Dr Surf doesn't like giving away any surf locations. (laughs) He's very vague with his surf report. So I'll keep that theme going and just say the surf is out there and... (laughs) Go find it. Look and you will find, (laughs) yes. And... You can almost do similar to your mowing as just a scent. You, you just check every camera that you can find and yeah. away you go. You pick your best spot. Yes, yeah. And I don't know what it's like for you, but I find when I go for a surf and to check the surf is I go to the first spot and I go, oh, maybe I'll check another spot. I'll check 10 other spots and I always end up back at the spot that I started. <laughs> and if I had just gone in, then I would have had an extra half hour of surfing. So I might also just give a quick dive report. Where are the best web webcams for checking out the surf? Where would you find them online? I, again, it depends on where you want to go. So I tend to check there's one at 13th Beach, which gives a really good idea of just the size of the swell. Uh, I also use there's a camera at Pope's Eye. So the Nature Conservancy have a camera, an underwater and above water camera at Pope's Eye. The underwater one's great to check dive conditions. Uh, the above water one is really good just to see what the winds are doing. Um, it gives you a really good idea of how blustery it is because it's one thing to see an arrow on a chart, <laughs> but if you can actually see it, and that gives you an idea of what's happening basically both sides is a really good way. And then over Mornington Peninsula, I think there's a camera at Gunner Matter. But you use that as a basis and then you go and find a sneaky little spot without too many people out there. It tends to be the way. <laughs> now, I did, I'll do a quick dive report because I do have some information here and I have to thank PT Hirschfield because I basically just jumped online and read her Facebook post. <laughs> and she was out for a dive yesterday at Blair Gary. She reported that it's 10 degrees. Yeah. So it's a little on the chilly side. But she found flirting seahorses, and I'd like to talk to her more about the flirting seahorses. I'm like, how do you know a seahorse is flirting? <laughs> and I'm also wondering if they were flirting with her or whether they were <laughs> flirting with <laughs> each other. <laughs> but she found a couple of tasseled anglers, uh, large octopus, and some cuttlefish as well at Blair Gary Pier. So she had a fantastic dive, and the viz was about 8 to 10 metres and a little bit cloudy. So. Well, off Williams Daniel, so it would have been 20 metre vis easy. It was crystal clear. That's right. And you said Sandy Webb actually went in yeah. the water for her dive? Yeah. And yeah. checked it out? Yeah. Also, it sounds like we shouldn't be here. We should be out in the water exploring, basically. <laughs> Either diving or surfing. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. All right, and we're back. We're back. Thank you to Kent for answering the phones and thank you to everyone that called in. It's been given away. Sorry he couldn't get to all of you. It's quite a popular one. It's good to know there's lots of people out there listening to us. (laughs) At least one. (laughs) At least one, yes. (laughs) Now, I have great pleasure in introducing Fom Shako from the Port Phillip Eco Centre, but she's also from a sister community radio station, 3CR, which I've had the pleasure of being on quite a few times. Welcome, Fom. Thanks. It's nice to be on the other side for a change, (laughs) eh, Kate? (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. A bit of a role reversal. I've been in 3CR a few times having great chats with you in there. Yeah. yeah. And so you're on out of the blue as well? 
Yes. Yeah, and is that are you rushing off to there? No, today? no, not no, not today. So I think it's either Andrew Christie or Erin uh, and Heather today. And they're on at eleven thirty till twelve. Yes, that's they correct. Are, yeah, and they present a lot of marine news as well. So it's good to have you on board and good to have you in. Now, Thanks. a couple of weeks ago we had Neil in, who's everyone seems to know the baykeeper and knows Neil, and we just sort of. I guess started talking about the microplastics and plastics in the Maribyrnong River and the Yarra River. I think it started because we saw that he was in a little clip that they were doing about it. They tend to bring him out. They always bring out the most beautiful ones for the clips, don't they, in getting Neil on board? Of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you were actually the first author on this, and I'm, I'm guessing you're the one that's probably running this project, a lot, of, a lot of the energy behind the project. Yeah, well, I coordinate the project. It's called a Clean Bay Blueprint, and it's um, funded under the Port Phillip Bay Fund, just like a, a lot of other really great projects that are being run by community organisations at the moment um, to look after Port Phillip Bay and the waterways as well. And, uh, yeah, I have the pleasure of, uh, of coordinating it, but there are many, many people involved and many partners. And I think that's the beauty of the community projects, isn't it? Is there, there's so much collaboration and so many people and particularly community members always tend to surprise you with just these random skills that they have. Yeah, they exactly, up. exactly. And we kind of we need that, you know. I mean, you can't really, if you want to do something for the environment that actually has an effect, then you have to collaborate together. Like we cannot work in silos anymore. Yeah, and that's you know, it. That's, and uh, and yeah. that's the beauty of a lot of the Port Phillip Bay funding is that they've encouraged those collaborations and encouraged community to actually be on board. Yeah. And let's go into your project. I wanted to know, sort of curious, from the start of the day when you decide, okay, we're going to go out and sample microplastics in the Yarra or the Maribyrnong River, what does a typical day look like for a microplastic sampler? So uh, we work with the Yarra Riverkeeper Association. So Nikki Kowalczyk is usually the person driving the boat these days. Um, and uh, we get picked up in uh, Docklands, the harbour there where the where the boat is. And uh, we go out and we deploy a manta net. And that's, that's a net that... It's called a manta net because it kind of looks like a manta ray. So it's got this really, it's really flat and it's got this really wide mouth and it kind of floats on the top of the of the surface, you know, the surface of the water. And so when it's being dragged behind the boat, so we actually use it as a trawling net, um, it basically swallows up all of the water and everything that's in it of the first 20 centimetres of the water column. So that includes organic materials, but that also includes floating plastics. So... Uh it had a massive downpour this morning just before I left home. There was, I think the people are doing the Melbourne run today. Oh. It would have got saturated. <laughs> it just it hit them really hard. But yeah. I'm guessing sort of events like that must really affect what you find when you're running these toes. Yeah, that's funny because we thought stuff. we actually thought that um, rainfall would be like a major, major factor for it. But um, when we look at the data, and the data runs from you know, January 2015 till October 2017. And these are monthly monthly trawls that we do. We actually didn't find uh, a correlation with rainfall. Um, it would be really interesting to have another closer look at that when, you know, in the next two years when, when the other results are in as well. Um, but yeah, that, you know, could be so many different Is that more just that. suggesting that we do have a lot of plastic in the water regardless of whether there's Absolutely. runoff or it, it's just there all the time? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you look at the difference in the river uh, when it comes to microplastic loadings, in the Maribyrnong in summer we actually get way more, mi way more plastic pollution in there than in the winter, which, you know, you wouldn't expect 
yeah, if you correlate it to rainfall, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we have we've had a few really surprising, uh, really surprising results there, and and we really need to, uh, in the next two years, we're going to work together with. Uh, uh, volunteers from other places uh, who are going to help us with trying to find out where where these plastics come from and what is the main reason they get out into the river because there could be many many reasons for that and there's lots of variables there yeah now just to go back to this poor manta ray that you've towed behind the boat and <laughs> <laughs> clogged up with plastic it did actually make me think that idea of like manta rays are filter feeders yeah. and with the what you're finding anything that's a filter feeder is going to be exposed to these microplastics that's obviously a big part of the issue yeah but once you've okay you've towed the manta so we're towing the manta net yeah. the manta net not the manta so, ray behind yes. the boat <laughs> <laughs> we like manta rays um we tow it behind the boat and we do that for 30 minutes so we go we tow it upstream and uh, we do that for 30 minutes. And, and after where 30 do you minutes, start and where do you finish? In, like, how far do you go in 30 minutes? So it really depends on what the tide is doing because, yeah. you know, we, we go to uh, the start of the Yarra River. So we, we plonk the net in under Balti Bridge and then we just go 30 minutes upstream at 1,000 rounds per minute, you know, uh, with the engine so that we, we keep it as constant as possible. But obviously, if the tide is going out, you know, you won't get as far as when the tide is going in. So there is a little bit of a, of a variance in how, how far we go. And for the Maribyrnong River, we put the net in the water at Cannon Jetty, which is really just where the Maribyrnong enters the Yarra River, so in that crossroads. And then we tow all the way up, and um, usually we get to about Footscray Bridge. Oh, wow. Again, yeah, depending yeah. depending on the tide. So you just watch the world go by while you're sitting in the boat? It is really lovely. Cruising up the river, yeah, yeah. 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 Of course, we have a kind of a hidden agenda as well. We really like to invite people to come along on trawls. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you what, you know, it's it's there's nothing as good as networking, as being stuck on a boat together for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, is there a correlation between nice weather days and the days you do the trawls? Uh, is the weather generally nice is what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we try to. I mean, obviously, there's like, you know, safety stuff that we need to keep um, keep, keep in mind. But no, we do usually do the first Thursday of the month kind okay, of thing. Unless it's really dismal, yeah. you know, then we'll, yeah. then we'll postpone, yeah. All right, and so now you've got this big bag of, of gunk. Basically. Yeah, basically. How, how, how much does it weigh? How much stuff do you get? It really in the depends. End of it? Like, we have a lot, a lot of, of variation in yeah. samples, you know. Um, so it depends, you know, if it's a Yarrow or the Maribyrnong, if it's winter or summer, it, 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 there's a lot of uh, variety in it. But um, basically, at the end of the Mantanet, there's like a collection sock that you can detach from it. And that's where all of the stuff goes into. <laughs> um, and then we take it to the eco center where we dry it. And then we have to separate the plastic material from the organic material. And that's that's where the volunteers come in. And I cannot, you cannot imagine how passionate these people are to help us out with separating microplastics from organic materials by hand with the naked eye. Wow. And yeah, how big a volume? Hours. I'm just trying to picture how, like, if you were to lay it out on a table, obviously there's variability. Yeah. But if you were to lay it out, does it cover, like, a normal coffee table um, Usually, sometimes? Usually kind of, usually the sample fits into one of those, like, uh, plastic takeaway tubs, you know, that you get when you buy Indian food or... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that, so plastic takeaway tub. Not that you'd be using plastic takeaway tubs. Of course tubs. not. No. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but sometimes... You you know, we get really big samples, then we need a bucket. 
Wow. But that's mostly I mean, usually that's that's a lot of organic material yeah, that makes up the bulk of that. Yeah, but they still have to visually sort through all that. Absolutely, to yeah, oh, yeah, goodness. yeah. So um, credit to the volunteers, guys. If you're listening, I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great props to them. Yeah. So, now they go through and they sort it all. Yeah. So we sort it into different categories because we were very interested in um, looking a little bit closer at the sample and seeing what the repeat offenders are when it. Yep. Comes to plastic pollution so we look at things like polystyrene uh, we look at straws no polyester girls sorry no polyester girls <laughs> no, no no that's we need microscopes for uh, for polyester and that sort of thing um so we do nurdles as well plastic resin pellets which is not technically a litter it's an industrial pollution uh, but we are very interested in that as well because we are working with epa and tangaroa blue foundation to um to stop these plastic pallets from getting into the waterway. Anyway, I digress. That is a totally, yeah, we totally, can talk about totally that another different time. It'd be great to have you back again. actually to talk about the nurdles because that's quite an interesting one where they're tracing yeah. it back to the sources and really changing things. Yeah, as absolutely. Far as and goes. there's but a lot of really exciting movement in that area at the moment. So yeah, park that. We'll right, get back to that continue. at some stage. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we also look at things like you know the difference between soft plastics and hard plastics, for example. So the bulk of what we find in both rivers, and then I'm talking talking about an average of uh, 65% and 67% of, sorry, 77% and 67% of the samples are hard plastic remnants. And that is a category that is basically made up out of small plastic pieces that you can't really identify where they come from anymore. You know, it's that is that uh, a plastic grit that is just broken up pieces of larger plastic items. So it's just stuff that's probably been rolling around on the street and washed yeah. around and moved and it's just exactly. slowly broken into smaller and smaller. Yeah, and that makes up the vast bulk of, of the samples in both the Yarra and the Maribyrnong rivers. So it's, uh, and that is quite that is quite problematic because all of that washes into Port Phillip Bay. Well, that was leading to my next question and you had an amazing figure, which I don't have in front of me and hopefully you can remember off the top of your head. Oh, yes. How many <laughs> items were you saying potentially end, or end up in Port Phillip Bay? So we, we kind of extrapolated from the samples that we got and we calculated there's 828 8 million pieces of plastic pollution entering Port Phillip Bay from both rivers combined every year. And obviously that sounds like a massive number, but remember that that is an underestimation because we only trawl the top 20 centimetres of the water column with that manta net, right? Yeah. So we don't really know what else is going in there. Cigarette butts, for example, we find a lot on beaches. So whenever we do cleanups around the bay, you always find heaps of cigarette butts. We hardly find any in the samples. And that is probably because they suck themselves full of water and then they sink, right? So they are actually not in that top 20 centimetres. So those 828 million pieces uh, is only a part of what reaches the bay annually and um, 74% of that so 612 million pieces are microplastics that are smaller than five centimeter uh, five millimeters in diameter wow and I mean microplastics themselves is almost a field of study now it's become oh it, it totally is it's, yeah there's a lot of literature out there and it, unfortunately it's growing because this is becoming more of a problem and we still don't have a really good understanding of the role it plays in ecosystems. Well, we kind of we kind of starting to get there though. Yeah, yeah. Like we, it's very well documented. By you know, it, it frustrates me when I, when I hear people say, "Oh, plastics pollution, it's a it's an emerging issue." No, it's not emerging. It is there. It is an issue, and we need to understand that. There is a large, large body of scientific evidence now that 
uh, will detail all of the effects of plastic pollution and specifically microplastics in the marine environment. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of species have been proven to ingest microplastics anywhere from tiny zooplankton to corals to sea cucumbers uh, to larger fish to whales. So this is, you know, this is something that is not an emerging issue. It is really, really paramount that we do something about it now. And to put a positive note on this, because <laughs> I mean, this is something we're going to have to do something about. You, yeah. There were also recommendations as a result of the port report. It wasn't all doom and gloomy. You do yeah, actually yeah. go I into mean, there are ways we can move forward and help reduce these numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me like, oh, is it not very depressing, you know, working with these numbers and doing this kind of research? But I actually think that humanity is really great at changing anything that they put their minds to. And this plastic issue is no different. So I do believe that we can change this if we want to do this. Um, we just need to make sure we put our minds to it. So um, recommendations that we are making in the report are mostly a little bit geared towards government because the report is geared towards government. But there are things like, um, you know, we need to increase education of plastic literacy. Everybody uses plastic and a lot of people don't really know what it is they're using or how to dispose of it properly. So that is one thing. Another thing is that we need to start looking at um, instead of having a throwaway society where we have a linear way of using products, you know, like you pull the oil out of the ground, you make plastic out of it in a petrochemical factory, um, then you buy it as part of packaging, you use it for a matter of minutes sometimes in the case of plastic straws, then you throw it out and then it lasts forever. Right. Mm -hmm. So rather than having that linear economy, we need to be working towards a circular economy where all of the products that we use are actually reused and reused and reused and reused again um, in a way that it doesn't get out into the environment accidentally. So is there a specific trap for all these plastics that make their way out the, down the Maribyrn and Yarra and out in the Port Phillip? Do they sort of eventually end up outside the head, say in the rip or somewhere like that? Or is it... Yeah, we're, we're looking at that at the trap? moment. So uh, there is no trap, unfortunately. There are there are litter traps in the Yarra River. Yeah. Um, so the, I think Parks Victoria maintains 19 litter traps. Mm -hmm. And those are for the floating, uh, for the floating litter. Yeah. But we have found that when that trap is emptied, um, the way the way it is being emptied, uh, microplastics still get lost in that process and they still keep flowing down to Port Phillip Bay. Um, a piece of plastic in Port Phillip Bay, I think the EPA has done some modeling around this and a piece a piece of plastic stays in the bay for about one point, I think it's up to 1.6 years, something like that. Like, yeah, I'm not sure about the exact number before it actually makes its way out to the ocean. Wow, yeah. And so for us living in Melbourne, it's a really important thing to remember that Port Phillip Bay is basically a big plastic sink yeah. because everything that goes in there from the suburbs right through the Yarra and Maribyrnong actually stays in there for quite a while. So if we want to look after this environment and if we want to keep eating the fish and the, and the shellfish, you know, that we that we have in the Bay um, commercially as well, but also recreationally, then we need to start really thinking how we are going to reduce our own plastic use. The thing I find most inspiring is you're actually using this research to try and make a change. Like you've got the community involved, you're collecting this data and then using that data to basically advocate for changes. And I think that's a fantastic thing to have the community on board. And 
I think we'd love to get you to come in and talk plastics with it again. You've got such a depth of knowledge, Pom, <laughs> and I think we've only really just tipped the iceberg with that, haven't we? Oh, we've yeah. Got a bit more we to could go. talk about plastics forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about the side that comes with that. But thank you for coming in today. It'd be great to catch up with you again soon. We're now going to go to a track by Chris Wilson that he performed on Rock Quiz and on his way out. It's called Living in a Hard, Hard Land. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en 3RRR. Right, and we're back on Radio Marinara. Now we're going to cross down to Sorrento, and I thought I was going to be talking to Pauline, and then I got told I was going to be talking to Terry, and then I got told I was going to be talking to Pauline. So who have I got? You've got me, Pauline. I've, I've got Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone around the room. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, Pauline, we haven't actually met but i just saw your story was passed on to me by p2 hirschfield who's a regular on the show about work that you and a friend kate did to get a couple of moby chairs um or get some money to buy some moby chairs and get them installed down at uh, blair gary yacht squadron how did that come yes. about well we were selling raffle tickets down in blair gary shopping center and we approached pt and her group of friends and they were having a coffee and she was inspired by the fact that someone was actually getting chairs for the beach down here. And um, I spoke to her afterwards that night. And, um, yeah, she put me in touch with you. And, yeah, that's how we got involved. And yeah. so you were selling raffle tickets to buy the Moby chairs? Like, wh what no, was the... Well, we had a fundraiser night organised, uh, <clears throat> which was called Rock Wiz. And that was um, the Blair Gary Yacht Squadron. They um, gave us the room for the night and the staff, and we charged a, an entry fee. And all that money plus the raffle all went to purchase the two chairs that we've now got. Now, you so, wanted, did you want to purchase the chairs? What was the reason behind purchasing the chairs? Are there people or friends that you have that you're interested in helping support to get into the water? Yes, I'll, we've got a son who's a C3, C4 quadriplegic. He lives up in Cairns with his family. They came down last Christmas and he said, oh, it'd be great to take the boys to the beach. So I searched high and low and the only places that we could get was a chair over at Point Leo Surf Life Saving Club. And, um, well, we didn't even know about Mount Martha at that stage, Mount Martha have also got a chair or two chairs. But uh, I thought, this is a holiday destination. It's surrounded by water. And if you're unfortunate enough not to be able to get to the beach, um, you know, that's it. You can't go to the water. Now, so you've it was like a no-brainer, let's get some chairs. That, and by the looks of it, the plan is to, you would like to get them everywhere. And now to do that, you actually have got another fundraiser coming up again, don't you? Yes, we do. We're having another Rock Whiz with Brian Ankervis, and that's at Blair Gary Yacht Squadron on um, the 1st of September. And the bookings can go through the trybooking.com. And um, it's $50 a ticket. And it's a great fun night. Brian Ankervis is so generous with his time and his energy and really supportive of our initiatives. Yeah, so um, Fantastic. Yes, any Thank of your you. listeners would be 
keen to um, book a table. That'd be fabulous. Fantastic. Thank you, Pauline. Now, we're going to have to go, unfortunately. I appreciate you jumping on the phone with us and we'd love to keep in touch with you and see how you go in the future. Okay. Um, I sent you a, a link yesterday yep. for... And we'll, um, we'll put it through onto our Facebook page. Link. Will you? Yes, to let people know. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you Great. very much, Pauline. We've got to head off. To you, you too. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That's it for Radio Marinara. We've got to run. The doctors are sitting there ready to go. <laughs> You've got an angry look on their faces too. <laughs> they do. We better move. Thank you for joining us today. I've been Cade Mills. Rex Hunter. And we'll see you next week. Bron and Anth are going to be interviewing Joy McCann about the Wild Sea, the history of the Southern Ocean, the author Joy McCann, and also Simon Karras is going to be online talking about Winter Wild Festival in Apollo Bay. Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.